Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this is a program that's done in partnership with the Lymphoma Foundation of America and Cancer Care. And it's really a pleasure to be working with them on this program today. Um, and um, today's program is supported by Gilead and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Um, now, we have um, quite a few of you on the call today. There's over 150 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Greece and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Catherine Diefenbach. And Dr. Diefenbach is Associate Professor of Medicine, Translational Director of Hematology, Director of Clinical Lymphoma, Promata Cancer Center, an NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center, and Ryu Langone. And Dr. Diefenbach will be addressing an overview of diffuse sludge B-cell lymphoma, including staging and grading current standard of care, and treatment options for resistant disease. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Diefenbach. Hi, it is so nice to talk to all of you. So I'll tell you a little bit about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is actually the most common aggressive lymphoma of, of lymphoma. It is quite common, but there are many subtypes. So let's talk first. Um, about staging and grading, and then we'll talk about current standard of care, and then we'll talk about some options for relapse patients. So most patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma will present with lymph node swelling, um, and often those are in the groin or the armpit or the neck, but sometimes the lymph nodes swell in places that you don't see them. So if they swell in the chest, you can have a cough or shortness of breath, um, and if they swell in the abdomen, you can have abdominal pain or indigestion. Sometimes diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in advanced stages can involve the liver or the bone marrow or the spleen, and then people could feel tired or unwell or have abdominal pain, um, and sometimes it can affect the bones and then patients would have bony pain. Staging in lymphoma is quite basic. One lymph node group is stage one. Two lymph node groups on the same side of the diaphragm are stage two. Two lymph node groups or more um, on opposite sides of the diaphragm are stage three. And then involvement of, um, of bone marrow or other organs that are not lymph nodes is considered stage four. But it's important to understand that in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, how we understand risk is not simply a matter of stage like it would be in breast cancer because we can cure many patients with stage four diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Instead, we look at something called the International Prognostic Index, or IPI, and that really tells us um, that really tells us for diffuse large B cell lymphoma all the factors that go into understanding what your risk of um, what your risk of diseases and your likelihood of cure. And so stage is only one of five factors. The others are age. So older patients are considered to have higher risk disease. How good your your performance status is. That's how well you are doing. Something called the LDH, which is an inflammatory or cell turnover number. And then do you have any disease outside of your lymph nodes? So those are, those are the risks. And that's more important than your overall stage. Grading diffuse large B-cell lymphoma really goes into understanding what your risk is. And basically, this just depends how aggressive the cells are, how quickly the cells are turning over. And to this, we look at something called the KI-67. And then we also look at certain molecular and histological features, like where the cell, what the cell of origin is, where this cell um, went bad in terms of its developmental pathway. And we look at other um, um, markers, such as MYC um, or genes, such as MYC BCL2 and BCL6, that tell us uh, 
you know, with regard to the aggressiveness of this lymphoma, is it going to be an aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or a more well-behaved diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? Diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is a treatable and often curable lymphoma, but unlike the indolent lymphomas, it does require chemotherapy to be treated. So all patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma need, need cytotoxic chemotherapy for cure. The oldest patient that I've treated with cytotoxic chemotherapy was 97 years old. So chemotherapy can be modified for the elderly, and the elderly can still be treated with curative intent chemotherapy, and the data shows that when elderly patients are treated with curative intent chemotherapy, they do much better than if they're treated with palliative chemotherapy. The standard of care for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is a chemotherapy backbone called RCHOP, reduction cyclophosphamide, adriamycin, vincristine, and prednisone. And this is given uh, uh, for six cycles once every three weeks. Exceptions to this would be patients with really early stage disease who might get four cycles in radiation if they had a very uh, early stage and small amount of disease. For um, most patients, as I said, RCHOP is the backbone. However, there was a new study two years ago where they looked at a new drug called polituzumab vidotin, an anti-CD79 antibody drug conjugate, and compared RCHP with the POLA to RCHOP and found that the polituzumab arm improved the progression-free survival that less people had their lymphoma come back and the toxicity was the same. So now, really, the standard of care for many patients is to get polituzumab instead of vincristine in their RCHOP. And RCHOP or RCHP POLA cures many patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Unfortunately for some patients, their lymphoma will come back. And the good news is there are many treatment options for resistant disease. So we can cure patients with resistant disease in one of at least uh, two or three ways. So the old-fashioned way was to get more chemotherapy and then get an autologous stem cell transplant, which is to get um, your cells taken out, get high-dose chemotherapy, and then have your cells put back in. There's a new method now called chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, or CAR T-cells, which is an immunotherapy. So CAR T-cells are a way in which your cells are taken out of your body. They are trained in a dish to recognize the lymphoma cells they are expanded, grown up, and then put back into you to go and attack the lymphoma. So this is a basically a way of training your immune system to attack the lymphoma. And this uh, treatment works well even for patients who are not in remission. So this can be a curative therapy like autotransplant, but the difference is autotransplant is only curative if you go into autotransplant with very little disease, whereas CAR T-cell um, can actually... Uh, um, cure you even if your disease is not controlled. And there are new CAR T cells now coming out all the time, but CAR T cells are approved for patients whose uh, lymphoma has come back within two years of their initial treatment. Other treatments include something called bispecific antibodies. So most antibodies like rituxan have one arm. Uh, bispecific antibodies have two arms, one to grab a lymphoma cell and one to grab a tumor cell. And basically brings the tumor cell in proximity to the immune cell and says, immune cell, here's a tumor cell, eat it. So the immune cell then does eat the tumor cell. And um, this therapy has been also highly effective in relapse disease. For um, many patients who've had complete responses have had durable remissions, even if they've relapsed post-CAR T cells. There are other therapies for relapse patients, including uh, polituzumab, which is the drug used up front. Um, in combination with a chemotherapy called bendamustine. There are also other drugs. There's a drug called uh, Lanka, which is uh, a CD19 antibody drug conjugate. There's another um, antibody called tafacitumab that's given with lenalidomide. You can get lenalidomide alone. So I think, and then there are clinical trials, which I believe Dr. Um, Mulvalli will be talking to you about in just a minute. So the bottom line, I think, uh, the take-home is that there is uh, really a new um, treatment option for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and that's RCHP with POLA. These bispecific antibodies I've talked about for you for relapse disease are now being investigated in the front line in combination with chemotherapy, but they are one option for patients with relapse patients, as well as CAR T-cell, which can cure relapse patients, and autotransplant, which can cure relapse patients. And I think that is um, my time, or almost, but... Um, Suffice to say that even elderly patients can um, be treated 
for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma with frontline and uh, treatments for relapse disease, and that we are able to give curative intent chemotherapy even for the oldest patients and even for patients who have heart disease or other comorbidities. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Diefenbach. It's a wonderful presentation, stellar. And actually, you really set the stage for the program today and um, gave people a really nice sense of what um, um, the fuselage B cell lymphoma is and how it's treated. And so thank you so much. Uh, we'll look forward to, um, there'll be questions to you, I'm sure, during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Aaron Mulvey. And Aaron, Dr. Mulvey is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Royal Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Mulvey will be addressing new and emerging treatment approaches, the role of clinical trials, and how research contributes to treatment choices. It's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mulvey. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much to the Lymphoma Foundation of America and Cancer Care for having me on the call. Um, there have been a lot of new treatment options approved for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, as you'll hear me say, over the past few years, and it really has become an exciting and promising area of growth and progress. Patients with newly diagnosed or previously untreated DLBCL previously had the same standard of care available for nearly 20 years. Back in 2006, the combination RCHOP that Dr. Diefenbach was just discussing was first FDA approved. Chemotherapy drugs work by interfering with the ability of rapidly growing cells like lymphoma cells to divide or replicate themselves. Because most of an adult's normal cells are not actively growing, they are less affected by chemotherapy. But there are many tissues that are sensitive to chemotherapy and that are also damaged. Um, this includes the bone marrow where blood cells are produced, the hair, uh, the lining of the gastrointestinal tract, to name a few. Rituximab was one of the earliest targeted, quote unquote, immunotherapies available in DLBCL. It targets a protein on the surface of B lymphocytes called CD20. The addition of rituximab to CHOP chemotherapy um, back in the early 2000s was shown to significantly improve survival for newly diagnosed patients with DLBCL compared to the old standard CHOP alone. And that is what led to the new paradigm. Many studies have been conducted over the years to try and improve outcomes for patients with DLBCL beyond what RCHOP can achieve. A lot of very courageous patients, dedicated doctors, participated in efforts to try and move the needle, but for about 20 years, RCHOP remained the standard. There is a variation of RCHOP called REPOC that adds an additional chemotherapy medicine called etoposide, which is administered as an infusion over five days rather than an IV treatment over a few hours. But for mo most patients with DLBCL, there's no additional benefit beyond what RCHOP um, offers, and there's certainly additional side effects. However, our EPOC is used for specific subtypes where it does seem to work better. This is in patients with a specific subtype of DLBCL called primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, and also in patients with what's now referred to as high-grade B-cell lymphoma. Outside of these specific subtypes, RCHOP has remained the standard of care because of um, data that's been coming from clinical trials. Now, though, we have a new treatment option for untreated DLBCL, which Dr. Diefenbach mentioned. This came following the large clinical trial called the Polaric study. There, in this study, an updated version of RCHOP was used called POLA-RCHP. The regimen is very similar to RCHOP, but it substitutes one of the standard chemotherapies in RCHOP called vincristine and instead replaces it with a newer, smarter version of chemotherapy, a drug called polatuzumab. Polituzumab is a type of antibody drug conjugate. You can think of it as a targeted chemotherapy. The drug recognizes and binds to a protein called CD79B, which is on the surface of DLBCL cells. And when it binds to this marker, it releases the chemotherapy agent so that it's more directed at the lymphoma cells. What the Polaric study demonstrated is that at two years, a higher percentage of patients treated with POLA-RCHP remained in remission without progression of their lymphoma compared to those treated with RCHOP. The study began in 2017 and follow-up is still ongoing, but based on the results published in 2022, this led to the FDA approval for POLA-RCHP in 2023. There are some early data that suggests certain subgroups of patients appear to benefit more from this combination. However, it's still too early to be certain. This data may influence who will be receiving POLA-RCHP in the future and who will receive RCHOP. For example, specific subtypes called non-GCB um, 
lymphomas or older patients or those with multiple sites of involvement outside of lymph nodes. More to come on that. In the relapse refractory setting, we have a growing number of new therapies available. Up until the fairly recent past, we really only relied on chemotherapy, oftentimes followed by a procedure called an autologous stem cell transplant, again, as Dr. Diefenbach has discussed. This is an approach that's still sometimes used. However, um, lymphoma can sometimes develop resistance to chemotherapy, and other times patients aren't able or willing to undergo such intensive treatment. So this talk that we're having today would sound a lot different, even if it was five or 10 years earlier. Probably one of the most exciting developments in VLBCL has been chimeric antigen receptor therapy, or CAR-T. It's a very innovative approach where a patient's own immune cells called T lymphocytes are removed from the blood and then reprogrammed to recognize, target, and kill lymphoma cells. There are three FDA-approved commercially available CAR-T products, Axicel, Lysacel, and a third called Tisacel. These agents can sometimes be used in the second-line setting after initial treatment or alternatively in later lines. CAR-T therapy is a potentially curative treatment for patients whose lymphoma returns after initial remission or in those whose lymphoma did not respond to initial treatment. CAR-T has revolutionized the treatment of patients with DLBCL, and it continues to improve outcomes for patients. As more data emerges from ongoing studies, we hope to get better at predicting who will have these very deep and durable responses. Another novel type of treatment that we now have available for relapsed refractory DLBCL are the bispecific antibodies. These drugs are designed to simultaneously target and bind to a protein called CD3, which is on the surface of T lymphocytes, and CD20, which is a protein on the surface of DLBCL cells. The drugs work by bringing the T cell closer to the lymphoma cell, which results in the release of cancer-killing proteins and signals from the T cell. So this is another approach where the body's own immune system is responsible for killing lymphoma cells. Two different bispecific antibodies were approved by the FDA for use in relapsed refractory DLBCL in 2023. One is called epiridumab and one is called glofitumab. We are all very enthusiastic about these agents. They can work for patients who've had multiple prior treatments, um, and for certain patients, they can induce deep responses that last for years. There's a lot of growing interest in using these agents earlier in the course of DLBCL, but this um, remains in the clinical trial setting. There are several other targeted therapies also available in the relapsed refractory setting. Dr. Diefenbach mentioned some of these. One drug is called capacitimab. It's a monoclonal antibody that recognizes CD19, another protein found on the surface of DLBCL cells. It's used in combination with lenalidomide, which is an oral drug used in several other types of cancers. It works as an immunomodulator, and it can enhance immune cell function and promote cancer cell death. Another, um, quote-unquote, smarter version of chemotherapy called longestuximab tezerine is available for use in relapse refractory DLBCL. Longestuximab recognizes and binds to CD19 on the surface of DLBCL cells and releases a chemotherapy agent directed at the lymphoma cells. Um, there are even still more targeted agents that have been approved for use in DLBCL. For the sake of time, I won't review each of them one by one. However, what they share in common is that these agents are selective in their targeting of lymphoma cells. And while they each have their own unique group of potential side effects, they're not traditional chemotherapies, and so they're often more tolerable, and they can overcome some of the ways that lymphoma cells become resistant to chemotherapy over time. So hopefully the message is coming through that this is very much an evolving, improving, and growing area. We certainly still have a lot of room for improvement. We want to be able to offer curative options for all of our patients. And the only way we will continue to move forward is by conducting clinical research. As a community, we're always looking for better ways to care for people with DLBCL. To make advances, doctors develop research studies, including patient volunteers. All of the drugs that we've been discussing today um, have become approved by the US FDA after being tested in clinical trials. Hundreds of lymphoma clinical trials are being conducted at hospitals, cancer centers, and oncology offices across the world. Clinical trials are used for all types and stages of DLBCL. Many trials focus on studying new treatments to learn if the treatment is safe, how effective it is, and if it's possibly better than current and existing treatments. Trials can also be conducted to study new combinations of existing drugs, or new settings to use existing drugs in. For example, there are several ongoing clinical trials using bispecific antibodies with variations of RCHOPs to try and improve outcomes for untreated DLBCL. 
In this way, people who participate in clinical trials can be some of the first to get a treatment before it's available to the public. FDA approval, as we all know, can sometimes take years after early data um, could suggest benefit. However, there are, of course, potential risks with clinical trials, including possible side effects and also the chance that the new treatment may not work. And so it's crucial to understand the pros and cons of joining a specific study. I recommend clinical trials to my patients for several different reasons. For some, a clinical trial may present the best treatment option available. Other times, patients have specific risk factors or even other medical issues where I worry the best standard option may not have the expected results we're hoping for. And so perhaps in that setting, the option of added uncertainty of a clinical trial is warranted by the hope of a better result. Other patients feel compelled to have access to the newest, the newest options, and others want to contribute to the progress of treating and improving the LDCL. Certainly, clinical trials are not for everyone, and for plenty of patients, really the majority of patients, um, they're treated using standard treatment. But the standards become the standards because of clinical research, and our future treatment patterns are developed based on data from trials. I am very optimistic that the research that we're conducting today will continue to benefit our patients with the LDCL of tomorrow. I'm happy to take any questions on any of these subjects at the end. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Malve. That was just a wonderful presentation um, and very engaging and very enthusiastic in terms of people hearing about the great benefits of the, the advances that have been made in the treatment of DLBCL and also in terms of the importance of clinical trials. And um, I know there'll be more, more questions to you about this during the um, question and answer period, but just a lovely presentation. Thank you so much. Really excellent. Lots of information. And our next speaker is Dr. Samuel Yamshan, and Dr. Yamshan is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Bone Marrow Transplantation and Cellular Therapy Program, Lymphoma Program, while Cornell Medicine, Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology. And Dr. Yamshan will be addressing tips to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of question and discussion, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Yamshan. Hi, and thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be speaking with all of you today. Um, I'm, I'm going to, to be sharing some uh, direct tips about managing treatment side effects with you shortly. But I think what probably the most important thing that uh, to know about managing side effects and discomfort with uh, treatment for lymphoma is to communicate with your doctor. I think one, one thing that uh, has certainly developed over the last several years is that we have a lot of different tools in our toolbox to help with all different kinds of discomfort, pain, nausea, and any sort of side effect. But we can only give those tools if, uh, if we understand what's going on. And so communication, I think, is really the number one most important thing. Um, I, I'm going to mostly touch on uh, the direct side effects from chemotherapy um, and then later on talk a little bit about some of the side effects from some of the newer therapies like CAR-T and bispecific antibodies uh, that Dr. Mulvey and Dr. Diefenbach had previously spoken about. Um, I think starting off, probably the most common side effect with uh, chemotherapy is nausea. And so I, I think probably our most common question and, and um, one of the things that patients deal with the most is how, how to deal with uh, nausea. And so um, working with your doctor ahead of starting chemotherapy to come up with a plan to prevent nausea before it happens is really critical. And we find that we have a lot, of, a lot of different tools in our toolbox to help with nausea. There are several different uh, styles of anti-nausea medicines that are uh, available to us. Um, and working together to find a regimen ahead of the chemotherapy that we think will work uh, will prevent some of the nausea from occurring in the first place. Um, unfortunately, sometimes some nausea or vomiting still does occur, and so we also need to have a backup plan in place so just in case that that nausea does occur. And so, uh, again, communicating with your doctor ahead of time, being comfortable with the plan, 
for prevention and then for dealing with what we call breakthrough nausea um, is really critical. Um, another uh, side effect that can happen commonly is uh, mouth sores. We find that there are some factors that are, um, can make mouth sores worse ahead of time. So for example, um, tobacco or alcohol use ahead of, of chemotherapy can worsen mouth sores. Um, being dehydrated can worsen mouth sores. Um, and so definitely uh, ahead of chemotherapy and during chemotherapy, it's a good idea to, to stay as hydrated as you can. Um, good quality dental care helps. Um, sometimes, of course, with those mouth sores, it can be difficult to, to brush your teeth. And so um, we do have some uh, things like foam swabs that are uh, available if brushing teeth becomes painful. Um, drinking through a straw can sometimes help with um, some of the mouth sores as well. And so, um, again, just communicating with us so that we can help you as, as these side effects uh, happen is, is critical. Um, we have some mouthwashes that can help with mouth sores. So um, both uh, mouthwashes that help with dry mouth as well as kind of a numbing style mouthwash. Um, the flip side is that alcohol mouthwashes that you may have at home may, may hurt. And so we, we definitely recommend avoiding those um, if, if you have mouth sores. The other um, thing that is really helpful is there are some uh, over-the-counter medications like Maalox, um, or other magnesium-containing medications can help with the mouth sores. And Oragel, um, which is also available over-the-counter, can help numb some of those mouth sores. Um, of course, uh, anytime uh, you know, going through chemotherapy, another common side effect is uh, insomnia. Um, and sometimes that, can, that insomnia can be related to uh, anxiety or sometimes depression. And so... Um, I think it's really critical to, uh, again, communicate with, with us and with uh, family members as, uh, as you notice those side effects occurring, and we, we have a lot of ways that we can help. Um, specifically with regards to some of the newer therapies, like the bispecific antibody therapies and the CAR T cell therapies, so those, are, those therapies are what we call immunotherapy. And so the way that they work is they utilize our own body's immune system to fight the lymphoma. And essentially what they're doing is they're treating the lymphoma essentially like it's an infection. And so many of the side effects that can occur with an infection also occur with immunotherapy. So fever is extremely common. Um, uh, body aches, very common. Um, and just as when you get a bad infection, sometimes you might get a little bit delirious or confused, that can happen with uh, the uh, bispecifics and CAR T-cell therapies as well. With some of these therapies, we actually do uh, the, the therapies in the hospital so that we can monitor for some of these side effects. And in those cases, uh, the nurses will, will be checking in very frequently to make sure you're not having those side effects. But many of these treatments are actually now being given at home. And so during, those, um, during the period in which you're getting these uh, treatments, it's really critical to have um, family members or, or um, other family members or friends around um, just to be around and make sure that, uh, you're, that as you develop these side effects, that um, we're, we're able to promptly communicate with the medical team. And again, we are able to, to help you and give you the tools that you need to combat some of these side effects. Um, in terms of the uh, telemedicine appointments, so telemedicine has totally revolutionized our, uh, our ability to um, see you frequently and to communicate often. And so um, that is, I think, a critical tool, especially if you're living a long way from the office. Um, it, it's a great tool to be able to, to see you often and evaluate how you're doing, even if it's a long drive to the hospital. Um, one thing that, that uh, I, I, a lot of patients find very helpful is making lists of questions ahead of time. Um, and as uh, we often find in our visits that patients um, are – they realize later that there were questions that they didn't get to ask, and that can, can sometimes be very frustrating, especially if they need to call back or, you know, either they feel like, oh, well, it's not worth calling the doctor to ask that question, 
And so we often find that making lists ahead of time can be very helpful for kind of setting the agenda and making sure that every single thing that you are worried about is addressed during the visit. Um, I know that not everyone on this call is uh, from the United States, um, but one thing that I think has kind of changed our practice very recently is in the United States recently, there was a federal law passed that um, gives instantaneous access to um, all of your notes and all of your imaging and lab results. Um, and so um, on, on that can be very uh, useful for patients to be able to see everything pretty much immediately and uh, alleviate some of that anxiety of waiting for test results to come back. Um, the flip side of that is that you um, may read things in the notes that you may not understand or want clarification on. And in, uh, in some instances, you actually may even see the test results before your doctor does. So uh, a scan result may come back while your doctor is in clinic and they haven't even seen the result yet, but you're, you're seeing it and evaluating it in real time. And so um, I think one thing that's important is um, to, again, communicate directly with your doctor when you see those results and uh, make sure that um, you're, you're not taking those results to heart, especially because uh, it can be very difficult to understand what's going on. And so because those results are often written, especially things like PET scans written in medical language, it can be very difficult to interpret. And so I definitely urge you when you get those test results to call your physician and talk about it, and talk about it as soon as you can uh, rather than trying to interpret them on your own. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I think that's all of the information that I have for now. I'm looking forward to discussing a little bit more in the Q&A. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Yemshan. That was a wonderful presentation, a very informative, lots of information about treatment, managing treatment side effects, having a plan ahead of time. That's really terrific also. And also the discussion about the open notes and how they would handle that. So the whole, your whole presentation was just very useful, I think, to our participants. And I want to thank you very much and do look forward to the Q&A as well. So I'm sure there'll be questions for you there as well. And um, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Belita Cowan. And Ms. Cowan is president of the Lymphoma Foundation of America. And Ms. Cowan will be addressing the Lymphoma Foundation of America's free programs and services and she'll be providing their telephone number, their email address, and website. It's really a great pleasure to be working with her on this program, and it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Belita Cowan. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for inviting us to partner with Cancer Care. Lymphoma Foundation of America is a national cancer charity, and we provide free services and programs for lymphoma patients. If you are a patient or you know someone who is, we are here to help you. You can call us at 734-424-2000, or you can go to our secure website for more information. For example, Lymphoma Foundation of America gives travel aid to lymphoma and leukemia patients to help with your transportation costs to and from your doctor appointments. We can also send you a list of many organizations that provide financial help for prescription drugs, health insurance, legal help, and family assistance for pediatric cancer patients. Lymphoma Foundation of America has nurse counselors you can speak with to answer your questions. Our goal is to help you better understand your situation so you can make informed decisions about your health care. And we welcome family members to contact us to learn how to help as a caregiver and as a patient advocate. Lymphoma Foundation of America gives grants and awards to cancer researchers who are dedicated to finding a cure for lymphoma and who are developing new treatments and studying the environmental causes of lymphoma. So please visit our secure website, www.lymphomahelp.org, for helpful information on clinical trials, uh, second opinions, lymphoma diagnosis and staging, and of course, there are inspirational stories from people who are sharing their journey to recovery. It's my pleasure to participate on today's panel 
Uh, thank you, Dr. Messner and Cancer Care for the excellent information that we've heard from Dr. Diefenbach and Dr. Mulvey and Dr. Yamshan. And I'd like to especially thank the doctors for mentioning CAR T-cell therapy. Lymphoma Foundation of America gave a research grant to the lead investigator and her team at Harvard Dana-Farber Cancer Institute who were developing and testing CAR T-cell therapy along with other cancer centers so that this therapy could be approved for patient treatment. And we are so glad that many more lymphoma patients now have another option for recovering from lymphoma. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Callen. Very inspiring and just a wonderful resource for people to utilize your organization. Um, also, I should let you all know that we will be sending out a survey monkey in a couple of days. Um, it's an evaluation of the program, but also will include any um, websites we've got out, any information like that that we give out, um, and anything else as well. So that it is both an evaluation of the program, but you're also going to get lots of resources. So um, just to be aware of that. Um, so thank you so much, Ms. Cowan. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care. Um, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization. Um, and the services are provided primarily by oncology social workers. Um, we have a HOPE line that people often call, 1-800-813-4673. Or they may visit our website to get really a total listing of every service that we offer, www.cancercare.org. So what are the services we offer? Well, many people in the United States do call our HOPE line. And, and that is answered by an oncology social worker, and they're all in queue, so they basically do answer your questions. You don't have, there's no waiting time um, to, um, to speak to an oncology social worker. And, and people ask all sorts of questions or ask for support. Um, and so that's a very important service that we provide just an immediate kind of help to people. And then people then may sign up for an online support group. They may sign up for our we do offer practical and financial and co-payment assistance as well, which makes a tremendous difference for people. Um, we also um, do offer these educational workshops, publications, coping circles, um, and resource navigation, so a host of services. And you'll be able to see on our website all the different online support groups we have. We do have them on lymphoma program, on different types of lymphoma, different types of cancer, for caregivers, for young adults, older adults, um, partners, it's actually family members. So the, we have quite a few online support groups for you to access. Those are all free. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A. And I'm going to ask Regina to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we'll take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, I have quite a few. Um, so this is a question um, for Dr. Mulvey. Are there clinical trials available for relapsed um, DLBCL patients? Um, certainly, this is probably one of the biggest areas where clinical studies are um, playing a big role. Um, lots of, as I mentioned, studies aimed at evaluating new agents that haven't been used yet in the disease, but also new combinations. Um, and so we generally, when we're approving new agents or combinations, often study these first in patients who have relapsed refractory disease um, because there's a greater need for, for treatment options, and then subsequently treatments get moved up and tried in earlier lines of therapy. So absolutely, that is always a very viable option um, and important thing to consider when treating relapse refractory disease. And thank you so much. Excellent. And our next question for Dr. Diefenbeck, what are the signs to look out for as CLL transforms to DLBCL? As a CL patient, should I be concerned about DLBCL? So that's an excellent question. A very small number of CLL patients 
have what's called transformation to aggressive lymphoma. And in those cases, we actually can treat the aggressive component and often eradicate it. But the things to watch for, and your doctor should often be asking you these questions, are what we call constitutional or B symptoms. And that is fever, chills, night sweats, or rapidly growing lymph nodes, and weight loss. Now, you can have fevers, chills, and night sweats when you have the flu or COVID. So, you know, every fever, chill, or night sweat is not necessarily transformation. But the, a good rule of thumb is fevers, chills, and night sweats for at least two weeks that aren't getting better and don't have a known infectious cause. Similarly, the weight loss is not because you're on Ozempic or dieting, but is uh, inadvertent or weight loss that you're not, you know, trying for. And the rapidly growing lymph nodes, you know, if your lymph nodes are generally stable and all of a sudden, you know, within three weeks they're, they're much bigger than they were, then you know that's a change of pace from your usual disease. So transformation is not a subtle thing. Generally, you won't be feeling well, and you'll have at least one or more of the symptoms that I described. And then um, the doctor can get some lab tests, including something called an LDH, or lactate dehydrogenase, which, if it's elevated, can be suggestive of transformation. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and for Dr. Yamshan, my side effects have been relatively consistent since I started treatment. My provider cautioned me that they might get worse as I progress. If they do get worse, how can I recognize them as simple, simply side effects or something else? When should I go to the emergency room? So I think that that's a very tough question to answer without knowing the specifics of, of the side effects. Um, but I think that things that would prompt an emergency room visit would be um, either things that are you're completely unable to control at home. So for example, um, pain that is uh, you're completely unable, unable to control with medications or uh, heat packs or things like that, um, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea that you are completely unable to stop at home, um, or things that could potentially be uh, life-threatening um, would prompt a visit to the emergency room. So, for example, um, lightheadedness to the point of passing out, um, chest pain, shortness of breath, uh, difficulty uh, in, uh, you know, being able to catch a full breath. Any of those, I think, would prompt a visit to the emergency room. I think, uh, as, as we discussed earlier, I think uh, communication with, uh, with your doctor is key. And so usually the side effects of treatment, as if, if they do get worse, happen gradually rather than quickly. And so if you notice that there is something that is uh, progressing, I would let your doctor know ASAP because we, as, as we discussed earlier, we do often have a lot of treatments that we have to try to nip some of these things in the bud before they start to progress to something more serious. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you so much. That's very helpful, um, I'm sure, to this participant, but also to everybody on the call. Thank you so much. Um, um, this question for Dr. Diefenbach. Does everyone diagnosed with DLBCL receive RCHOP as treatment? Does treatment differ by subtype? So yes, um, treatment may differ by subtype. If you have a primary mediastinal diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or PMBCL, which has a different histology, you might get REPOC. Otherwise, um, for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, outside of a clinical trial, you'll get RCHOP or RCHOP without the vincristine with polituzumab substituted for it. So those are really the standard treatments for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. As I said, there's some phase three clinical trials right now looking at adding a bispecific, either epgaritimab or glofitimab to the RCHOP backbone, but that is investigational at this point. Um, and this question um, for Dr. Melvay, can having RA um, increase my risk of developing DLBCL? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, one, I think that's actively still being investigated. We know because unfortunately a large number of people like you suffer from rheumatoid arthritis or other rheumatologic or autoimmune conditions. We know generally speaking that 
patients with these conditions are at an increased risk for developing lymphoma. It's certainly not destiny for everyone, right? It's not that that is inevitable to happen. It's just if you look at large populations of people, the rates are slightly higher among patients with those disease versus those who don't have them. Now, the question that remains is, is there any influence in the immunomodulatory drugs that are used to treat these conditions, or is that simply an outcome of the underlying aberrancy in the immune system? And I think that that question remains unanswered. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and um, this question uh, for Dr. Diefenbach, are there clinical trials available for relapsed DBLCL patients. Sorry, can you just repeat the question? Are there clinical trials available for relapsed DB, DLBCL patients? Oh, yes, there are many clinical trials available for relapsed DLBCL patients. So, you know, there are trials, uh, the bispecific antibodies are now approved, but there are trials combining chemotherapy with a bispecific antibody. There's a trial that I lead looking at standard chemotherapy called ICE, ICE, with a bispecific antibody called glofitamab. There are trials of novel CAR-T therapies. There are trials of novel bispecifics. There are trials of novel antibody drug conjugates. There are more trials for relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma than perhaps any other type of lymphoma. And so even though it is challenging and scary if your diffuse large B-cell lymphoma comes back. Know that there are many, many options, including curative options for you. And you should sit down and talk to your doctor, or if your doctor isn't a lymphoma expert, uh, set up an appointment with a lymphoma expert and talk about all the many options and which ones are best for you. Excellent. Um, I don't know if I'm able to jump in. Sure. Yes. Um, because, you know, this is a very important question that I think was also asked earlier. The important thing to point out is that the availability of clinical trials is quite different depending on where you're being treated. And while one office may have one trial open, that could look very different from a center that's even only five miles away. And so um, having a really good conversation with your physician and also if you're motivated, interested, um, doing some research on your own is also a possibility. There's a website which perhaps uh, the organizers of this event could share. It's called clinicaltrials.gov. It's a place where you can look and search for um, active clinical trials in the area and the disease of interest. So relapse refractory DLBCL would have lots of options. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Melvin. And we will certainly um, include that um, as a resource for people. Clinicaltrials.gov is a wonderful resource. Um, and I hope everyone will take advantage of that. They also, if those of you who want to talk with somebody, you can call the number 1-800, the number 4, and then cancer. And also, um, it's on the West Coast, so it's a West Coast time. So for those on the East Coast, they're open later. And to some extent, of course, they open a bit later too. But to some extent, um, often people have questions later in the day. And so it's a great resource to, to have. And we will include that in, in the handouts, the, the um, um, survey monkey evaluation that you get. Um, and um, it's a question um, for Dr. Yamshan. Are there other factors involved in staging besides growth? Are there others? Sorry, can you repeat the question? Are there, are there yes, other factors? Are there other factors involved in staging besides growth? So, I think the so the the way that we typically think about staging lymphoma is by location. So, we typically think of lymph nodes in one specific area and nowhere else as stage one. Uh, lymph nodes in multiple areas uh, and on the but on the same side of the diaphragm, so either the upper half of the body or the lower half of the body as stage two, then both sides as stage three, um, and uh, then outside the lymph nodes as as stage four. As Dr. Diefenbach had mentioned in her talk, that the staging in lymphoma does not imply anything about curability. And so unlike with, say, 
breast cancer where stage four implies that, that, it's, that it's incurable, stage four DLBCL uh, is, is commonly cured. Um, and so um, as Dr. Diefenbach also I think spoke a little bit about earlier, we have some other prognostic scoring systems and some of those do take some of the like growth aspect of things into account. Um, it takes blood work into account. Uh, mutations are also risk factors. And so there's a lot of different factors that play into, uh, you know, the risk of a specific person's diffuse large B cell lymphoma. But one thing that I think is really critical with lymphoma, and I think bears repeating, is that the state, again, the stage does not impact curability. No matter what stage it is, diffuse large B cell lymphoma is a curable disease stage one through four. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's, I'm sure I can hear people. We can't hear them, but they're probably breathing a great sigh of relief to hear that. So thank you very much. And um, question um, for Dr. Mulvey. Is surgery the only option if my lymphoma is causing a blockage? Oh, that's a good question. So a little bit difficult without knowing the specifics. Generally speaking, we don't think of surgery as uh, either a treatment option, certainly not a curative option for patients. However, there are instances where surgery is used as an adjunct treatment, so a modality to help either alleviate symptoms or alleviate a complication. And so there are scenarios, certainly in the case of either obstruction or blockage of kidney outflow, uh, bladder outflow, potentially even um, colon or, or gastrointestinal outflow, where sometimes um, you really cannot afford to wait because the symptoms are so bad for another treatment to kick in and, and surgery is used as a quick alleviating measure. However, in terms of really treatment of a lymphoma, because this is a blood cancer, the treatments that we use are systemic treatments, treatments that are able to um, really attack and eradicate lymphoma anywhere throughout the body. So when surgery is used, it's really used in specific scenarios where other options like bispecifics, CAR-Ts, targeted agents, et cetera, may not be able to get on board quickly enough. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I'm going to ask our speakers um, to kind of provide a takeaway um, for, for today's program that they'd like people to leave the program with. I'm going to start with Dr. Diefenbach, then Dr. Malvi, then Dr. Yamshan, and Ms. Cowan. Um, so um, Dr. Diefenbach, if you'd like to go first. Yes, yeah, so I want to thank all of you guys for listening. Um, I want to stress that diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is very treatable and often curable for any age, um, and that the backbone of frontline chemotherapy uh, remains uh, RCHOP, but this new drug called polituzumab is also an option for patients with advanced stage diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. For patients with relapse disease, there are many options for treatment. The bag is full including CAR T-cells and autotransplant, which are considered curative options. The bispecific antibodies now approved, which may be curative, but they are, um, the data on them is too early to say for sure. However, there have been patients who've had very long remissions with, uh, with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma from bispecific antibodies, antibody drug conjugates, novel targeted therapies, and many clinical trials of new combinations of these agents or newer agents. Where you're treated with lymphoma really does make the difference. I think as Dr. Mulvalli said, um, particularly if your lymphoma comes back, but even if your lymphoma is newly diagnosed, you really want to be under the care of someone who takes care of a lot of lymphoma patients and understands lymphoma because there are many nuances with regard to the care of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And the more knowledgeable your physician is, the more likely uh, you are to have an excellent outcome. However, that being said, um, if you have a doctor who doesn't treat a lot of lymphoma, but they read and keep up with the field, they can also take excellent care of you. If your lymphoma does come back, it's worth understanding what the standard treatment options and the clinical trials are before you um, make the uh, right decision and understand that we personalize treatment for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma without sacrificing curability, so that even if you have some cardiac disease or some pulmonary disease, we're still able to target the chemotherapy to give you the best chance of cure. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Malvey? 
Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to echo much of what Dr. Diefenbach said. She put it very nicely. But my, my take-home message would be one of optimism and one of hope. Um, we have more and more options available for our patients, even in the relapsed refractory setting. And that will only be expected to continue to grow. Lots of standard approved off-the-shelf therapies and certainly clinical trials. Um, and I'll, I'll just emphasize and highlight one is that for many of these novel off-the-shelf FDA commercially approved products like CAR-T, like Bispecifics, not every oncology office will have access immediately. And so there really should be a discussion if you find yourself in that position about, okay, is it time that we engage our local academic center, our local cancer center for this stage of your care so that we are using every single tool in the toolbox that we have available and choosing what's best for your specific scenario. Um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, especially when you're getting into subsequent lines of therapy, it's really not a cookbook approach. It should be a very uh, a tailored decision about what agent to use, um, one that certainly you know, patients are able to have uh, say in. And so um, keeping those things in mind is really important. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Yamshan. Thank you. Um, I, I definitely want to echo what, what, uh, what Dr. Mulvey said about, about optimism. I think this is a very exciting time uh, in, in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma because we've gotten in the last just few years so many incredible agents that are very, very, very effective at treating diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and more patients are being cured than ever before. Um, one, I, I guess if I had one word for as, as the takeaway of, of the section that I spoke about, I would say it's, it's uh, communication. And um, I, I, I think that the, the outcomes that we're seeing in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma are incredible, but we recognize that that journey is not always easy. And I think the really critical piece is it's not a journey that you have to take alone. It's a journey that, that you take alongside your loved ones, uh, your family, your friends, but also alongside your, your doctor. And that your doctor is here to help you. And the only way for us to know when something is wrong and you need help is, is free to let us know. And we are here to help. And we have so many different things that we have available to help with your symptoms. And um, that, that's really the critical piece is, is communication at every step of the way, how you're feeling. And, and we can help you get through it to the other side. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, he's amazing. And uh, Ms. Cowan. Thank you so much. Um, there are many nonprofit lymphoma organizations here in the U.S., and I urge you to contact these groups. They provide information and support and lists of resources um, if you're a patient or a family member, a, a caregiver. And um, they'll encourage you on your journey to recovery. And it's often very nice to know that there's some hand-holding out there as well as good um, medical information for you. Excellent. Thank you. I just want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I also want to thank also our participants who really asked such really great questions today. I was like kind of a sort of kind of really a very special um, call today. Um, I um, I just want everyone to know that we do um, archive these programs as podcasts, so they will go up on the Cancer Care website within a couple of days, actually. Um, and they will also have closed caption on them for anyone who might be hearing impaired or also for the general public who might just like to hear, to, to see the closed caption while the speakers are speaking as well. Um, I also do want to comment on the questions. Of course, we had many more questions than we could take. And so I do want to comment for those of you who asked a question. For those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who are in queue waiting to ask a question, I would like all of you to go back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, and they are the best ones to really, to really help you. And remember, your healthcare team consists of many people. It consists of your hematologist, oncologist, your oncology nurse, 
oncology social worker, dietitian, patient navigator, financial navigator. So no matter what the question is, there's probably someone on your team who can help you. And of course, as um, as Ms. Cowan mentioned, all of the nonprofit organizations that are out there. So we, as much as people might feel that they're alone, we want you to know that you're now part of a community of support and we are here to help you. And to echo the uh, comments um, uh, by Dr. Um, Yamshan, communication is so essential. And one thing that I wouldn't advise everyone to do, I really would suggest you do this, is people seem to run into difficulties. Well, it does happen. Um, you know, at different points along the day, but it seems like weekends, holidays, um, and evenings seem to be the time when people start to have all sorts of questions. And so I would say to check with your healthcare team when you start with them or when you're working with them now, um, who do you call? Who's available? Weekends, evenings, and, ho and holidays. That seems to be a time when people often um, run into difficulty in terms of who to contact, what to do. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.